The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. So great to have you here as we kick off this new year gathering together for worship. Wanted to make you aware of one other uh, thing coming up for our church. I think it's in the worship guide as well. That at the end of the month, starting on January 28th, we're having a week of prayer. Now, if you've been here for a time, I think we did two of these last year. But if you're newer, let me tell you what this is. This is, we encourage everyone who's a part of Morgan Hill Bible Church to set aside one hour of their week. And you can sign up online and we have a, a guided prayer experience here on campus campus that will help you pray and seek God for an hour. For some of you, that sounds daunting, but I promise if you've never done it, the time will fly by. And this time we're, we're working through different Psalms for the hour, and it's a guided prayer experience. I encourage you to sign up to do so, to dedicate the, an hour of that week to prayer. And new this time, at the end of that, on Sunday night, February 4th, we're having a corporate gathering of prayer that Sunday night here in our auditorium. This is for anyone. It'll be family friendly, um, but there's no no sermon. The purpose of gathering together is just to pray together as a church family for an hour. And so I encourage you to sign up for one or to come to both of those. They're going to be great as we seek God together in this new year. Well, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 25. If you're new to Christianity, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. So go right near the beginning or that first book in your app, however you're following along. And we are jumping in to a story this morning, jumping into the story of Isaac and then his kids, Esau and Jacob. One of the things that, that I love about Scripture, and we're going to notice this together, we're going to be in the book of Genesis for the next couple months together, is that following God, it doesn't just, the Bible doesn't just give you principles. It doesn't just tell you, do this, don't do this. But we see the lives of people like you and like me who follow God through great triumph and success and then have great failures in their life as well. And we see God's working in and through their greatness as well as their failures because we all have experienced both in our walks and in our journeys with God. And we see his faithfulness through their stories and start to see his faithfulness in our lives as well. well let's jump right in. In Genesis chapter 25, it starts today in verse 19. It says this, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Now, in two verses, the author has just summarized basically the last 13 and a half chapters of the book of Genesis. And if you don't know the story of Abraham, it's God called Abraham. He was living in a foreign country. God called him to follow him to a place that he was yet to see. And Abraham did, in faith, leave his country, followed God. And God made a covenant with Abraham that he would provide him with land, with offspring, and with blessing. And one of the main conflicts of the life of Abraham is that he was old and his wife Sarah was old and they did not have any kids. If you remember, finally, when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90, a son was born to them and that son's name was Isaac. And this story picks up after Abraham and Sarah have now passed away the story of Isaac. Verse 21 it says, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. 
Now, right away, we see here similarities to Abraham and Sarah's story, that they were barren for many, many years until finally God provided for them a child. It's the same with Isaac and with Rebekah. And the irony is this is one of the main promises of the covenant that they are walking in, that they would have offspring. It's actually interesting if you have your Bible open and you look back to the chapter before, as Rebecca left to go be married to Isaac, they blessed her in verse 60 of chapter 24 and said this, our sister, may you become thousands of tens of thousands and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. Basically, would you have kids on kids on kids and she can't have any kids? until eventually God intervenes. Now, what sometimes happens is we read stories like this in scripture and we don't see the chronology, right? We see, all right, Rebecca's barren, Isaac prays, they have a kid. And you're like, man, if only my prayers worked like that. You know what I mean? Like, boom, boom, boom. Well, if you look a few verses ahead, it says at the end of verse 26 that Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. So what we have here is a 20-year time gap of Isaac praying, and Rebecca surely doing so as well. So this first lesson that we see this morning as we are introduced to the story is that in following God, we need to wait for the plan of God. And following after God on this journey of faith so often involves waiting for the plan of God in our lives. Now, there is something that I have noticed so regularly and so so consistently in my life, and that is this that God's pace and my pace are often very different. Am I the only one or have you ever noticed this as well? In most of my life, I want things quick and fast and how I want them. And God says, slow down. It's not gonna come quite as quick or as easy or as fast as you want it. And I'm not even talking about bad things. I'm talking about good things that so often God makes us wait Now, we understand that oftentimes waiting actually leads to something better, right? Waiting leads to something better. We just came through the holiday season, and if you went over to someone's house to celebrate Christmas with them, and you were at their house, and they said, all right, I'm going to go start preparing dinner, and they came back out 10 minutes later, and they're like, already, it's done. Let's go eat. You'd be like, "Um, I'm sorry, I don't want hot dogs today. Um, Please go back and do something else. Right? For many of you, preparing your Christmas dinner took hours and hours, if not days worth of work, of marinating, of preparing, of smoking, of baking, of all of these things, right? And you know that actually waiting for it will turn out for something better. And it's often the same in following God. See, some of the greatest work God will ever do in your life is while you wait, Some of the greatest work that God will ever do in your life is while you wait on him. We sometimes like to think of growing in in faith with God as sometimes mountaintop experiences that we have. Maybe we, we open scripture in a prayer moment and we sense the presence of God. Maybe it's as we gather together in worship, you, you sense the presence of God or on a retreat that you go on these mountaintop experiences. But so much of spiritual growth happens in the day in, the day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, as we follow God and wait on him. One author put it this way, Waiting exposes the idols and throws a wrench into our coping mechanisms. It brings us to the end of what we can control and forces us to cry out to God. God doesn't waste our waiting. He uses it to conform us to the image of his son. See, we know 
that God uses our waiting. But here's the challenge. None of us like to wait. None of us like to wait. None of us are like, you know what I really want this year is more patience. I want to learn to wait. Like we may say we want more patience. That's a dangerous thing to ask God for, by the way, because how he grows your patience, just be ready for it. Right? We, we are all naturally impatient people. We want what, what we want right away, even if it's good things. But God will often use our waiting to prepare us for those things that he has planned for us. I remember many, many years ago um, when I was, I, I think I was in my late 20s, maybe 30 years old, that the, the previous church that I worked at, I was up for a possible promotion and it was a long interview process and I thought that it was gonna go through, but right at the very end, it kind of fell apart and I ended up not going, to, it wasn't going to happen. And one of the elders of that church took me out to lunch and, and he told me, he said, listen, I just wanna encourage you because when I was your age, I was promoted beyond my capabilities and it turned out to be one of the worst things that ever happened to me in my career. And in that moment, I wanted to say like, oh, I'm so sorry for you. You received a promotion and it was so hard. Please tell me more, right? But I, I was willing to close my mouth to listen as he said, and he said, listen, I don't know what God has in store for you, but I promise it's something good and even better than what you're wanting now. And in the moment, that's hard to hear. Right, Because in the waiting, you don't want to hear, oh, something better will come eventually. You want it now. But looking back now, I'm like, I'm so glad I got Passover for that. I'm so glad that, guess what? God knew what he was doing. Imagine that. God knew what he was doing when he told me, you've got to wait years for this to happen. And I look back and I'm like, oh my goodness, if that would have happened, I don't, it would have been a train wreck for me probably. But God knew what he was doing. And in the waiting, he prepares us for the things that he's called us for. So how do we wait well? How do we wait well on God if waiting is such a normal part of following after him? One way that we wait well is don't stop your spiritual habits while you wait. Don't stop your spiritual habits. Don't stop praying. Don't stop reading scripture. Don't stop worshiping. Don't, don't neglect community and isolate yourself. Don't stop your spiritual habits while you wait. I heard many years ago a pastor say, the moments that you don't feel like praying are the moments that you need prayer the most. But often when we feel silence from God, our temptation is to pull back, to withdraw, to say, well, if God seems absent from me, then I'm gonna be absent from him. And I'm not gonna show up. I'm not gonna pursue him. I'm not gonna go to church any longer if he's just telling me to wait. When in reality, those are the seasons that we need to lean in even more and continue to practice those things that we know are true and to continue to seek after God. Another way that we wait well is don't stop remembering what God has done for you. Don't stop remembering what God has done for you. Charles Spurgeon, the great British pastor, said many years ago, we will not grow weary of waiting on God if we remember how long and how graciously he once waited for us. When we feel like God is taking forever, remember what God has done for you. Remember how patient God has been for you in your life and how gracious he has been for you. Don't stop reminding yourself of God and what he's done for you. Lastly, as you wait, don't stop expecting God to show up. Don't live without expectation in your life. And this is perhaps the hardest one to live into. Because as you, as you wait on God, and perhaps it's, it's prayers that you've prayed, 
That, that eventually, if you pray the same thing for years, the, the natural inclination can be to start to say to yourself, well, God's just never going to answer. And you can stop expecting God to answer prayer. And it can be easy to, to move away and to not lean into the hope that God has for us and to not live expectantly that God will show up. I know I've seen this in my life as I've prayed for people for decades to come to faith in Jesus. It can be discouraging in seasons, but I just want to encourage you to not live without that expectation that God will use your seeking, will use your prayers, that God won't use your waiting for his glory. And so I don't know what it is in your life that you're waiting on today. Maybe it's a loved one who's walked away or is far from faith and you've been praying for so long. Don't stop praying. Maybe it's a job opportunity. Maybe it's kids. Maybe it's marriage. Whatever it is in your life that you're waiting for, in your waiting, don't stop seeking after God. That it's while you wait on him that he often does some of the greatest work within us. And so Isaac and Rebecca, after years of waiting, finally conceived. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her. And she says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when he bore them. We see in verse 22, it says that the children struggled together within her. Now, this is not the normal word that's used in scripture for the pains of childbirth. But struggled here is an exceptionally strong word. It's a violent collision, a crushing, a breaking of something. In Judges chapter 9, when a rock crushes someone's skull and kills them, it's this same word that's used. Describe that rock crushing someone's skull. This is a distressing, shocking thing that Rebecca is experiencing. And so she goes and seeks of God, and he gives this surprising news that actually the older will serve the younger, which is opposite of how it would have been expected in their time, that God has a purpose and a plan. And the struggle that she's experiencing within her is symptomatic and, and prophetic of the struggle that will characterize their whole lives, Esau and Jacob together. And so finally, the days came of her birth and, and the kids were born. Now, names play a significant role in Scripture, especially in the book of Genesis. If you remember back and know the story of Isaac, Isaac's name means laughter. And it's because when Sarah was told that you will give birth to a son in your old age, her response to God was she laughed at him. And so, I, so God said, all right, well, I'll remind you of this response. And I'll, you're going to now name your kid laughter. So you'll remember how you responded to me. And so there's two kids that are born. Verse, the first one came out hairy, and thus they named him Esau. By the way, when we get to heaven, I'm going to ask for the baby picture of Esau. Like, now, how hairy was this kid? I mean, most of my girls were born with hair on their heads. Was this like full sweater hairy? Or like, what exactly is going on here with Esau? 
But Harry and Esau come from a very similar name. We also see in a foreshadowing to the story that we're going to end with as we wrap up the sermon today is he came out red, both possibly red skin, possibly red hair, possibly both. But red is a characteristic that's attached with Esau throughout his life as well. After this, the younger one is born Jacob, and he comes out with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. Now, Jacob, his name literally means heel grabber. But in Hebrew, it's an expression or an, or an idiom for someone who tricks and deceives people. And so you literally have two kids who are born. You have Harry and you have deceiver who are born to Isaac, meaning laughter. And it's going to start to characterize their lives and their names. But we see here that before they're born, while they're still in the womb, God promises in verse 23 that the older will serve the younger because of the purposes that he has for them. See, the second lesson from this passage in following after God is we need to learn to trust in the purposes of God. To trust in the purposes of God. God has an eternal purpose that he's carrying out through every person who's lived. And that's true here of Esau and Jacob. So why does he choose Jacob to be the one who will carry on the covenant promises? Because he does. That's why. Because he is God and that's the purpose that he has. See, this passage highlights what we often refer to as the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, that word sovereign is still used today as a king or a ruler over a nation. And when we talk about the sovereignty of God, it means that God rules and reigns over all things. That no purpose, no plan of God can be stopped. He is the king of all. He is the ruler over all things. The fact that the sun rose this morning is because God is sovereign. The fact that you woke up this morning is because God is sovereign and wanted you to wake up this day. That's a part of God's plan. Now, there's a mystery in the sovereignty of God because it doesn't negate human agency or responsibility. But scripture clearly teaches us that God is the sovereign one over everything. Job 42, at the end of Job's life, after all he's encountered with God, he says this of God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In the Psalms, it says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Ephesians 1 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. In fact, Romans chapter 9 quotes and uses this exact story of Jacob and Esau before they were born of God, passing the covenant promises onto Jacob of showing his sovereignty even over salvation. That God is sovereign and in control over everything. See, when we stop and reflect on the sovereignty of God, it teaches us this important truth, that your life has never been out of control. Your life has never been out of control. Has it felt that way to you? It has felt that way often to you that your life is out of control. But if God is truly sovereign, which scripture teaches, then our lives have never been out of control. Have you ever been around someone whose life just goes out of control the moment anything goes wrong in their life? I have, because I'm the parent of a toddler. You all remember those years. Some of you are right there with me, right? Like, I haven't had a meltdown due to something small since about 7.15 this morning. 
You know, and I still remember there was a time, it was uh, last summer, where Aria and I, she was two, two and a half at that point, we were flying cross country to a wedding. Uh, my wife couldn't go, she was eight months pregnant at the time, so it was just the two of us. It was a cross country flight. The first three and a half hours went great. The last half hour made me question every life decision I've ever made. <laughs> but what, what, what do you do when, when a kid is out of control? Right? When, when you, you can't do anything, right? What, what do you do when the life is breaking down, nothing hurt? What, what do you do as a parent? Now, you have to keep your cool. I wish I could tell you I'm the parent that never loses my cool around their kids. I'm not that parent. But I try to be, right? Because when, when your kid is having a meltdown, what do they need? They need mom or dad to come and to hold them in their arms, in control, and remind them everything's okay. Everything is okay. And I also remember on that flight, that's all I could do was hang on to this kicking and screaming toddler as they didn't even tell me to put my seatbelt on as we're landing. That's how violently she's kicking back and forth till eventually she just passes out on my shoulder. See, her life just felt out of control. She wanted to get up. She wanted to run around. She was done. What calmed her down eventually was being in the arms of the one who said, no, you're, everything's fine. It's in control. See, when our lives feel out of control, we need to run to, the one, run to the one who is sovereign, run to his arms and find safety and security there and be reminded that no, everything's okay. I'm still sovereign over all things. We can rest in him. See, God's sovereignty extends and it's such an, a thing that can change our perspective. As we enter into this year, undoubtedly there's many of us this morning who are facing significant health challenges either for ourselves or for people that we love and care for deeply. See, God is sovereign over every day of your life, including how many days that we have. Psalm 139 puts it this way. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet they were none of them. Aren't you happy that none of us will die before God says it's time for us to? That he is sovereign over every single one of our days. And they've been numbered before we were born. As we're facing health challenges this year, that falls within God's plan and control and purposes. And we may not understand it fully, but it's in his sovereignty as well. Another thing coming up in 2024, I hate to break it to you, there's an election coming up this year. Talk about things that people will be out of control about. Daniel 2 reminds us of this. God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. I just want to remind you as we enter into this year, no matter what happens politically in this country this year, it won't surprise God. The plan of God will not be stopped because of who wins any election. It falls within his sovereignty, within his purposes. And the plans of God for this church, for your life, for this country will not be stopped by any person who is elected. We can rest in the sovereignty of God. Some of us need to take that perspective, especially as we engage with those who disagree with us on this issue. And see that we can do so with grace because it doesn't stop the plans of God in the world. That he's sovereign even over that. Another thing that God is sovereign over that his purposes are always for is the church, not just this church specifically, but worldwide the church. Jesus promises this in Matthew 16. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why am I so optimistic for the mission of the church in the world? Because God promised it would succeed. 
If God has said, I'm going to do it, guess what? He's gonna do it. And it doesn't matter how low this country gets. It doesn't matter how anti-Christian our culture gets or this climate gets. It doesn't matter. It's not going to stop the mission of the church because it's not you or me who build the church. It's God's church. And God is building his church. He uses you and me, but it's ultimately up to him. And if God says it's my purpose to build this church in the world, nothing can stop And so we don't need to be discouraged or lose heart as to what's going on around us because God has promised these things, that he's sovereign over all. And we can take rest and comfort in that. Verse 27 continues the story. Again, we have this leap in time. We don't know exactly how far ahead it goes, but it says when the boys grew up. So think probably decades ahead now at this point. It says Esau was a skillful hunter a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. So we have Esau, this outdoorsman who loves to go and to hunt game. And Jacob, a quiet man, that's not a derogatory term, but just he's normal. He stays close to home. He's a business interactions kind of guy. Verse 28 starts to heighten the conflict. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Right away, you start to see this is not going to go well. Right When parents start to play favorites, this is not going to go great. Verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Now, there's a little hint here of what's about to come that we miss, but they would have readily understood in their culture. See, in their culture, stew was always a vegetable stew, and stew was the backup meal in case there was no meat to eat to cook. And so Esau is the one responsible who goes and who kills the game, who brings the meat back. The hunt has not been successful. And so Jacob is preparing vegetable stew because of Esau's failure. Verse 30, and Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Remember, when Esau was born, he was red, possibly his skin, possibly his hair, possibly both. And then he goes and he sees this too, which literally just says, give me that red stuff. Here is the red man asking for red stuff that he needs to eat. Jacob, the deceiver, the trickster, ever wanted to take advantage of a situation, verse 31, said, sell me your birthright now. Now, what is the birthright? It doesn't explain it to us in this story. We know later on in the Mosaic Law, several hundred years later when it comes out, the birthright was that the older received twice the inheritance of the younger. That could be what it's referencing here. It could be something different. But clearly, as we see in the story, this is something valuable, of great intrinsic value that was given to Esau as the oldest son, although be it, you know, by just a few seconds or a few minutes. But, but Jacob says, give it to me now. Verse 32, Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now, this, and this horrible disease of hunger that Esau takes is probably like the worst disease known to man, like the man cold. He's exaggerating here, right? He's not actually about to die forever. He's just very, very hungry. Verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Verse 34 has this one giving food and then the other eating food. 
The only other time in scripture so far up to this that food has been given and then food has been eaten is in Genesis chapter three. When, when Eve took the fruit, gave it to Adam, Adam took the fruit and ate of it. The verb sequence is exactly the same. And so if we're reading through Genesis, we know this is not good. This is mirroring the very first sin when food was taken and given and eaten by someone else. It's the exact same words are used here for Esau and for Jacob. See, the third lesson that we can see from this story is that we need to learn to rest in the patience of God. Rest in the patience of God. Because here's the thing. When you look at this story, Jacob and Esau both look like the bad guys. Right? If you like really clear-cut characters, like in your books or in your movies, like I need the good guy to cheer for and I need the villain who I cheer against, you're going to be really frustrated for the next several months. Because sometimes you're like, wait, is Jacob the good guy or is Esau the good guy? Because they're kind of acting the opposite. And when you read this story, your natural reaction to both of them is like, I don't really like either of them. Like first we have Esau, who's impatient, driven by human desires to satisfy his needs now. Literally, Hebrews 12 says, don't be like Esau who sold his birthright for stew. In other words, don't make stupid, irrational decisions setting, compromising your future because of short-term pleasure. See, we don't have birthrights like how Esau does, but, but we too have this temptation to exchange valuable things for short-term pleasure and gain in our world. See, we would exchange the relationship and responsibilities we have as a parent or as a spouse to simply put in more hours to try and get more money or a promotion at work. Giving away something that's of eternal value, your family and those relationships for just another title or some more money. You could exchange faithfulness to your spouse for one night of pleasure. Long-term consequences for just short-term pleasure. You could exchange the integrity that you have to try and manipulate some things to impress a boss or to cheat on a test to pass, to, to look good, to perform for others, but to, by doing so, compromise your integrity for doing so. So don't fall victim to exchanging something valuable for short-term pleasure or for short-term gain. That was what Esau did. And he, we, right, we rightly look at him and say, that's, that's not good. But then there's Jacob who sees someone in a real physical need and immediately thinks to himself, how can I take advantage of this person for myself? See, this story is far from, hey, be like Jacob. That would be like, hey, go be a manipulative, mean person to everyone. Like, hey, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. Because Jacob comes out, he's this deceiver. He's selfish. He's looking after himself at the expense of others. And then we pause and we think, wait, this is who God chooses to use in the world? This is of all the people in the world who God picks as the representatives, as the covenant bearers of his name to represent and be a blessing to all people. See, God is an exceedingly patient God. God is an exceedingly patient God. And we see it as we see people like Esau and Jacob interacting. God now throw them to the side and say, all right, I'm going to find someone else. But he still uses them despite their failures and their faults. See, scripture says throughout the Old Testament that God is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That God is so patient with you and with me and with our mistakes and with our failures. See, God doesn't just put up with Jacob and Esau, but we'll see that he actually uses them to accomplish his worldwide purposes. 
See, God doesn't just put up with you. God will and can use you and me despite our failures and our mistakes. See, I've been a pastor now for nearly 16 years. And there's something that strikes me every year that I do this and it presses upon me more and more and more every single year that I get the privilege of doing this. And that's this, why in the world does God choose to use me? Because more so than any one of you, I see my selfishness, my pride, my anger. I see my sin more readily than any one of you see it in me. I by no means am perfect. I'm far from it. And the longer I do this, the more I think, why does God use me? But then I pause and I reflect and I think, you know, there's, there's this common theme amongst every single person that God has ever used for his name. They were sinners saved by the grace of God that are used by the power of God. They're sinners saved by the grace of God that are then used by the power of God working through them. See, don't think that your past has a limit now on how God can use you in the present and for the future. Don't think that because you've made mistakes that now there's a cap on your growth. There's a cap on the mission of your life because of something you've done. No, we rest in the patience of God, seeing that he takes us from where we were, wandering from him. He saves us by his grace, calls us into his family, and then transforms us to be used by him for the mission that he has for our lives and for this world. See, God doesn't use perfect people. There aren't any. God uses people who are available. God uses people who are saying, I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. But God, I want to be available to you. I want to be available to what you would have for me. So the question isn't, are you perfect this morning? We all know the answer. It's no. If you think you are, just ask your spouse. The person sitting next to you, they'll quickly remind you. Nope, not perfect. Far from it. But the question is, are you available this year for what God would have you do? Are you available to show the love of Jesus to that neighbor, that colleague, that person who needs a friend? Are you available to spread the gospel to the tens of thousands, to the millions of people in the Bay Area who, apart from hearing of what Jesus has done, will spend eternity apart from him? Are you available, not perfect, but are you available to be used by God to further his purposes for this world? God, we thank you for Jesus and that he saves us by his grace and then transforms our lives to be used by you. God, you are such an exceedingly patient God with us. You not only save us, but you choose to use us. God, may we, as your people, be available to you, ready and willing to, to partner with you in whatever you've called us to. God, not because we're perfect, but because your power works through even our weaknesses. God, we pray this for your name and for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.